In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. It's December, it's 1961. They've just completed the Berlin Wall. It's, you're mere months away from the Cuban Missile Crisis. And in that month, there's a literary journal in the Soviet Union at that point known as Novi Mir, which is translated as New World. And the chief editor of that literary journal is named Alexander Twardowski. He's done his day, he's whooped, gets his pajamas on, puts his robe on, gets into bed, and there on the side table is a bunch of manuscripts that he's going to page through and fall asleep to reading. In the pile is a manuscript that another editor had sort of secretly slipped into because she knew that if anybody else in the whole journal read this manuscript, they'd throw it in the trash can immediately and burn it. But that editor knew that this one would read it. So Twardowski gets into bed with his robe, picks up the manuscript, that one, and two pages in, he puts it down on a side table, he gets up from his bed, he takes off his robe, he puts on his work clothes, he starts a pot of tea, and then he sits down at his reading table and reads that manuscript twice through into the night before he goes to bed. And by his own telling of that account, he explained that the reason he did that is that it would have been an insult, he thought, to reading this manuscript in his robe in his bed. He knew in this moment, in that manuscript, that it was going to change his country forever. See, that document, under a working title at the time, would eventually be called One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich. And the author would soon be outed and meet the editor with not a little fear and trembling, and his name would be Alexander Solzhenitsyn. That story told the real-life experience of one person in a Soviet gulag, and in that moment, Tvardovsky knew, we publish this, everything changes. It is going to expose the culture and the ideology that brought forth the gulag, and in time, it would lead to discredit and dismantle the entire culture upon which that gulag was based. And the thing of it is, it was so unlikely that that manuscript would ever see the light of day, but once it did, it changed the world. One day in the life of Ivan Denisovich led to the very dismantling of a world. For six months, we have been listening in this community to one letter written by one person that the world had never heard of to a bunch of people that nobody cared about, about someone who had no reputation and no pedigree. And just like Solzhenitsyn's book, this letter was least likely to ever get lost, ever make its way through history. Never. And yet the subject of that letter would change the world, and that would be Jesus. And for those of you who are here that are, some of you are here that would call Jesus Lord, and others of you are here that love people who think Jesus Lord, but you don't roll that way, man, I welcome you. I am delighted that you're here. I totally get it. I totally understand it. I totally sympathize with that incredulity. But here's the deal. Whether you think Jesus is Lord or you just respect him as a figure of history, there's a list of things that you value that everybody in this room, regardless of what you stand on Jesus, you will not in approval. A guy named Glenn Scrivener, he's written a book recently. I encourage all of you to read it. It's called The Air We Breathe. I'm working through it now. Look at this list. 
These are things that I think all of you in this room would go, yeah, I'm for that. Equality, compassion, consent, enlightenment, science, freedom, progress. Nobody in this room would go, yeah, I could deal with maybe five of those, but two of those I'd leave out. None of you would. You'd all go, I'm in. I roll that way. So do I. I'm here to suggest to you, though, as Glenn Scribner does in his book, that all of those things that you value owe their origin and their perseverance to Jesus. You may disagree. Read the book. Fight with him if you want. I'd like to argue that one day, the one day that we're remembering this day, the one day that points to this horrific thing that became a beautiful thing because he rose from the dead, that thing changed the world. One day in the life of Jesus changed the world. And we want to talk about how, specifically as we can, whether you believe in him or not. So if you will, if you're wearing your metaphorical robe that might lead you to fall asleep, I get it. Could I ask you to take off your metaphorical robe and put on your metaphorical hot cup of pot of tea and lean in and consider why in these last four verses of this letter, that even if you've never heard a word before, you're going to hear the essence of what he said and the foundations of the culture that you rest in. We're in the last four verses of Ephesians chapter 6. It's going to go so fast, but would you stand anyway and we'll read it together. Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 21. So that you also may know how I am and what I'm doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister and Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can sit. Look, those, those last two lines, it, it, it kind of feels like just like closing words that you put at the end of a letter. You know, smoochy, smoochy, love you, XOXO, Paul, right? I get it. I get it. And it goes fast. But friends, I'm here to suggest to you that those closing words have substance behind them, have content behind them that I would suggest to you is how this world has been changed because of one day in the life of Jesus. What does the life of Jesus mean? What did that life of day accomplish? It brought, first of all, peace. Peace be to the brethren. It's well-wishing. It's well-wishing with content. And that day that we look to Jesus is not just Impressive. He rose from the dead. That's powerful. What did it accomplish? It accomplished peace. A peace that would start to work its way through people. Differences that were held and layered and entrenched and brought all sorts of animosity. Look, in that day, when Paul was writing to those people, he's talking about folks that are having a clash of civilization, a clash of histories, a clash of theologies, a clash of identities. And somehow in Christ, those differences, as real and as strong and as potential for great animosity might be, those were laid down. And a new community was formed. And in that peace, was bound up with this realization by everybody that came to Jesus, that they all had a common need, and they all had a common dignity. There's a moment in Lincoln where... Uh, 
Daniel Day-Lewis, who plays Lincoln, tries to explain to everybody how the nature of equality comes by, and he, and he borrows from, of all people, Euclid, the mathematician. And he says, when, when two things are equal to the same thing, they are therefore equal to each other. It's an idea that he tries to percolate, or at least Steven Spielberg would like to think he did. When two things are equal to the same thing, they are equal to each other. The peace that Jesus has wrought between people is not a math formula. It's about this notion. That everybody who comes to him are equal in dignity and equal in need. And when you see those two things, you lay down the other differences that are far less important. That peace comes between people. He brings that peace. And that peace that he brings between people, that's downstream of something else. Of a peace that's wrought within the human heart. Every one of you in this room has entered with something that you're preoccupied with. And you will leave this room potentially with that thing on your head like a magnet. Snap to grid. It's there. You're afraid of something. You're angry at something. You're disillusioned about something. You're depressed about something. You are not at rest. The peace that he has come to bring to us is meant to work its way deeply into those things. Not because those things automatically disappear. But he has an answer for them. He responds to them. He comes to us with strength and a love and by his spirit somehow tempers the things that hold us captive by the things that we're afraid of, the things we're anxious about, the things we're angry about. The peace that he works between people, the peace that he works within the human heart, that all comes though from one major thing, the most important thing, the ultimate place that was in need of peace and that is a peace that is wrought between you and the one who is responsible for the next breath you take. The one who is God, the one who is father to Jesus, the one who is father to anyone who might come and become a child of God. It is that peace that has been wrought in the human heart by what Jesus has done from that cross. That's peace. That's the peace he's meant to bring to all of us and in those manifold ways, that's the gospel. Okay, if that's what he's out to do, if that's one day in the life of Jesus and what it, want to, what it was meant to bring, what is that an evidence of? It's the second thing that Paul wishes everybody. Love with faith from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, uh, love with faith. Kind of a, what? What, do you, what does he mean by that? Let's just think about love for a second. In this world, love is always easier between those who are close to one another and who are like one another. I think you'd agree. If you're of the same people, of the same tribe, in the same place, sure, there are exceptions to that rule. But it is always easier to love those who are more like you and who are close to you than those who are distant from you or who disagree with you. It's always the case. Now what you and I would like to believe, what Americans like to believe, is that love is natural. It's instinctual. People just love each other. And I would say to you, who told you that? Where have you been the last three years? Do you think what happened earlier this week is going to drive us toward one another? 
Do you think there will be new peace and new consensus on the basis of that? <laughs> Do you think there will be new love? Look, love is a many-splendored thing. And sometimes love really surfaces in times of crisis. But when that crisis persists, do you think that love remains? Not without something coming in from the outside. Not without something profound. Look, with all due respect to John Lennon, he made a boatload singing, all you need is love, right? As if it was just sort of natural. That's like saying, all you need for a trip to Mars is a bicycle. <laughs> love doesn't happen naturally, and it doesn't last without help. It may surface for a time, but it will not persist. And yet, you and I know how essential it is. You and I know how crucial it is for love to remain. And you know what? A lot of people believe that that has absolutely no interest in Jesus. Okay, here's going to test your cultural uh, encyclopedic knowledge. Raise your hand if you've ever heard of an artist named David Coe. One. Yes. Boy, am I about to illuminate you today. All right. David Coe is an artist, and boy, are you going to know within the first half second after you see his face. He's from L.A. He's made a boatload. That's not a slide on L.A. He would make, a, he would love it here. He would love the gallery. But he was on a podcast recently in which he got really candid about the life that he's lived, about all that he's pursued, and very candid about what he's still looking for. Now, uh, i got to give a big caveat. I am not recommending that you take you and the kids and go watch the entirety of the podcast. Huge caveat. This is a work of editing genius that you're about to see. But I think it's really honest, and I think he's saying things that nobody else is willing to say. So listen to David Coe. Get past, you'll see the art on his face. But just listen to the life that he's lived and what he has come to a tentative conclusion about. The things that I tried to um, figure out, like a, like a game, like a video game, was sex, money, power, right? And I remember at that point, I was in my early 20s, I was like, man, people sure like talk about money a lot, right? Like it seems to be like this thing that causes a lot of problems in marriages and business. And I go, it doesn't seem that hard to me. As some, and I'm saying this as a guy in my 20s that's poor. I'm like, what if I just like try to be as rich as possible for the next 10 years or five years? Like, what if that's my singular focus? And so I did it and it, you know, it was a lot of work, but like the video game for, of money is over for me now. I made millions of dollars gambling. I made millions of dollars with my art. I made millions of dollars with Facebook. So that has, that game of that video game of money has no, mm -hmm. no, um, it's not fun for me anymore. Cause I've, I've, so, the video game of sex, which I wasn't very good at. And then I just went on a tear for a decade. I was so bored. I just was bored of the endeavor of that. And then, and then, you know, you meet people and everyone has their game. Like Hollywood people are like, I gotta get that Emmy or that Oscar. Or I, I, I like pick the game I want to play money pow. And then it's like, there's only one final quest and that's the spiritual quest. And we live in this world now where it's like, it's a crazy world, right? And the answer is love. And everyone says it, and it's in movies, and it's in books, but it's, what does that path look like? I remember when I went to the Congo the first time, I remember finding a missionary deep, deep, deep in the jungle. And he's like, bro, you think you're the first one? And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, you think you're the first 
like lost soul that's come here looking for dinosaurs and i'm like i'm like i'm not and he's like he's like i've been here for 20 years like living with these people like every five years a weirdo like you comes through <laughs> and do you think you're really looking for the dinosaur and i'm like yeah i'm looking for a dinosaur he's like no you're looking for something else you're either running from something else or you're looking for some kind of meaning in your life that you can't find so this is you've pushed yourself to to this you know Who's talking like that these days? Who's realizing that apart from love, we are doomed? Who's acknowledging that apart from finding something that is bigger and deeper and older and stronger and speaks more to our condition than anything else that we might find, who's talking like that? No, nobody. The love that I think Paul is speaking of and why he speaks of it about love with faith is that he's anchoring that love in something more than just, I wish I found love. He's anchoring it to something that is stronger than death. Faith from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The way in which the Father sends and protects and purposes the Son, that is love defined. And the way the Son forgets himself and sacrifices himself for the sake of others, that is love illustrated. That love is anchored to something that happens in history for purpose, through suffering, for you and for anybody who will buy in through the Spirit. That's love. And one day in the life of Jesus confirmed that that love is true and that it is stronger than anything else that you know. But when you hear words like that about love, look, I know that there's people in this room that go, wow, he's already talked about peace and he's already talked about love and he's in church. Isn't that rich? The church, love and peace, ha! Huh? Religious wars, religious hatred, I've seen that, I know that. You know what? You're absolutely right. But you know who you're smuggling in to make the critique? Jesus. The one who lives by the sword, he said, will die by the sword. The one who says, you have dignity because you are made in the image of God and you have need for which I will die, he said that. Peace and love. And it's anchored to an actual moment in which he demonstrated that love. Now you hear that and, and you're like David Coe and you're like me and you go, eh, I want to believe that, but come on, man. It, I know too many examples of people that have said they love me, but there was always a string attached and so anybody that makes a promise of love, it's kind of like, it's a little sus. I don't know if I want to go there with you. Thank you, you're welcome. You know who thought that too? Here's a name for you, Eleanor Roosevelt. Here's a woman, brilliant, bright, resilient, full of verve and vigor and insight and wisdom and, and demonstrated not a little forbearance. How shall I put it? In her autobiography, she said this remarkably candid moment. Up to a point, it's good for us to know that there are people in the world who will give us love and unquestioned loyalty. I doubt, however, if it is good for us to feel assured of this devotion without the accompanying obligation of having to justify this devotion by our behavior. Now that's a mouthful, breaking down into two ideas. Hey, you know what? 
It's awesome to know somebody and believe that their love is for you and it's unconditional. That's great. But she says, come on, let's be honest. It's actually better, if you will, kind of think it's probably not unconditional and I probably ought to prove to them that I am worthy of the devotion to justify that devotion to me. She thinks that. And you know who else thinks that? You do. And so do I. The idea that I might have a love and a loyalty that will look at me and say, I will love you even when you don't value my devotion. Friends, one day in the life of Jesus that changed the world is not just about peace and it's not just about love because both of those can only be explained by one thing and that thing is grace. The only thing that can ever explain why he would do that is because he wanted to out of love for you and not because you've deserved it. This world gets changed because people come to hear a message that in fact, that love and loyalty is steadfast and intact no matter how well or poorly you are valuing his devotion to you. That's grace. And that grace changed the world. And you hear that, and I hear that, and you know what? That story shows up in 10,000 stories, including kids, the Iron Giant. If you've never seen it, you have a responsibility to tell your parents. A moral imperative. They can tell you what that means. A moral imperative for you to tell your parents, we've got to go watch that. And you do. Because in that story is grace. And when you hear that grace, and when you see that grace manifested in all kinds of stories, you go, man, I want that to be true. But man, I don't know that I could ever trust that it is. Something has to validate it. Something has to prove that it might actually be more than just a story, more than just a story of longing for grace and peace and love to be true. Well, to set up my last point, I want to tell you a true story. Not me, but two of your friends who are going to tell a true story about two real people. There's an essay in Plow Magazine that we've included in the sermon resource page this week that you can go afterwards and read it in its entirety. It's written by a young woman named Elizabeth Button, and she is going to tell the story of herself when she's a teenager, growing into young adulthood, befriending, in a most unlikely way, a woman that is in winter. And it is a story entitled Letters from a Vanishing Friend. They are part of a community called Bruderhof, a community of faith, but a community like every other community that is not immune to suffering. Listen to the true story in their very own words. I was 16 years old when I met Ellen. Certainly, I was not looking for a friend in her 70s, but befriending her wasn't much hardship. Ellen was terrific company. But I did learn never to walk into her house without an answer prepared for, so what are you reading now? And learned to be chastised if I mentioned the John Grisham novel I had just picked up. 
that's not a book. I would then be urged to try one of her favorites. War and Peace, The Brothers Karamazov, and Pride and Prejudice. Someday, you too will find your Mr. Darcy. Soon after we became friends, I began helping her count out her pills for the week. She had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's, and as the months wore on, I think the psychological pain was the worst at first. But Ellen wasn't a stranger to suffering. She had lost her two youngest children, three-year-old Mark John and two-month-old Marie Joanna. Decades later, she wrote, My grief and pain accompanied me through the nights and the days for far too long, considering that I was a Christian and knew that our aching loss was their unfathomable gain. When I left home, our face-to-face -face conversations were transformed into an exchange of letters. She rarely complained, but my parents let me know how she was really doing. Panicked moments of forgetfulness, days smothered by a dark depression. Those symptoms were almost absent from her letters. I just finished War and Peace for the second or third time. It's a fantastic work. I guess you've read it. Or are you still reading Sue Barton, student nurse? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> your parents and I played Rumi Cube again, which your mom won hands down, as she always does. But your dad and I take it for granted and don't feel inferior. As your dad once said, I am still a man. <sighs> That's all I can think of for now. Auf Wiedersehen, not goodbye, my dearest and best friend. I love you, Ellen. As time passed, Ellen remained the optimist. And as her mind was pulling her into an unfamiliar place, our friendship took me to a new, deeper place of faith. Like with her consistent referencing of Father Zosima's exposition on the great idea in the Brothers Karamazov. Dostoevsky says... True security is to be found in social solidarity rather than in isolated individual effort. Oh, we'll, we'll suddenly understand how unnaturally they are separated from one another. A man must set an example and, and so draw men's souls out of their solitude and spur them to an act of brotherly love. Passages like this have convinced Ellen that living a life of brotherhood was the answer to society's problems. And I knew she hoped that I would also find it to be true. Even as her mind failed her, Ellen encouraged me from a place of unconquered faith. It says in Revelation, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. And death will be no more. I can't tell you how much that meant to me when Mark John died. Also in Corinthians, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. Death is swallowed up in victory. The timing of her letters was perfect. My personal faith was at a full ebb. 
Ellen seemed to understand the things I was going through in a way that none of my peers or even my parents ever had. As the Alzheimer's progressed and she felt her mind slipping, Ellen's letters began to describe moments of fear. My most dear Elizabeth, I hope you'll come home before my Alzheimer's gets worse and I, I don't recognize you anymore. No joke, it's getting worse. I hope you'll still love me then. Friendship is one of the most gracious of the Creator's gifts. As C.S. Lewis famously said, friendship is, quote, unnecessary. Like philosophy, like art, it has no survival value. Rather, it is one of those things which gives value to survival. The last letter I received was in 2014. I was now married to the Mr. Darcy that she foretold, and we had moved back to the community where Ellen lived. By now, Ellen was in a wheelchair, rarely speaking, a faraway look in her eyes. We still spent evenings together, but gone were the discussions of books and the clink of Rumi cube tiles. In a way, we were now strangers to each other. If you search the word Alzheimer's on YouTube, you will find videos of people who are wakened. Their faces come into focus. There are smiles of beauty and love as recognition returns. Watching, I think back to Ellen's favorite passage from Dostoevsky, where he points out how it is only by living together and supporting each other that we can, quote, draw men's souls out of their solitude. Even though Alzheimer's had isolated Ellen and stolen most of her recognition of our friendship, our shared commitment to a life of faith kept us connected to the end. So on that beautiful June morning, when I brought my baby to Ellen's bedside five days before she died, Ellen gave us such a moment of awakening. Her eyes opened, a smile filled her face. Ellen was never gone. Alzheimer's could ravage her memory and her body, but it couldn't take away the years that she spent loving me. And even after her dying, she is at home in the great idea. No matter what is true, that story is poignant, and it is heartfelt, and it is memorable. But if it is only a story of a friend losing a friend as another person loses their mind, then it is just a story of tragedy and sorrow, and it happens all the time. 
and it's probably happening with some of you in this room, you know the story. What can rescue a story like that from it only being sorrowful? The same story that explains and establishes why you might believe that there is a grace that expressed itself in love that brought peace among people that hate each other within their own heart and between themselves and the Lord. And this is that story. He was dead, and then he wasn't. And at first, they didn't believe it. And then they did. And the simplest explanation for why you and I are still talking about it is because it happened like they said. This is the day in the life of Jesus that changed the world. And we remember it this day that either you might be encouraged to it, by it, or invited into that story. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Let's pray. Father in heaven, this is what you've done. And now would you help us to believe and that you would have mercy on those who doubt and have mercy on us all when any of us do. For you are good and you are full of mercy more than we can measure, more than we would ever care to measure. Awaken us to what is good and lasting and beautiful and to a love that is stronger even than death. In the name of Jesus we pray.